But now we don't have any value. Hey, Lobster Boys, it's your death sentence for this week. Um, we got on the show one half of the podcast 12 Rules for What, which is the only podcast in the world with a better theme tune than this one. <laughs> like, it's just such a good little sound ident there. Brilliant. Uh, this is Alex Roberts. Um, Sam Moore can't be with us because he is in France right now. And um, collectively, they, are, they don't just podcast. They have written a book. To, they've written, this is their second book they've written together as a team. Um, like completely destroying us at this podcast for pro- productivity and literary, uh, literary noose. Yeah, having written books. Um, the, w- the way you do it, by the way, is just to keep on writing after you finish one and just barrel straight onto the second, which is what we did. And of course, have a global pandemic to keep you inside for extended periods of time. Bold of you to assume I could write one book. Um, but so, um, so Alex, um, probably best to start off with just introducing yourself and um, and Sam. And like, how did you first meet? Uh, what are your backgrounds? And uh, why did you start a podcast about the far right? Oh, we, we've known each other for quite a long time. Um, I, don't, I can't remember the movie, 2014 when we first met. Um, and, you know, we've been involved in political stuff together and we've been on and off talking to each other. It got to about, um, I think, 2018 and we... Uh, we're living together, and uh, we, the the project originally was going to be a Jordan Peterson reading group. We were going to read 12 Rules for Life and discuss it, and we thought this was very clever at the time. This was when Peterson was just like at his, I suppose, peak of his initial popularity. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we split up um, 12 Rules for Life, and we kind of apportioned the chapters to each other, and quickly realised it was really boring. And and not worth having yep. a reading group about at all. Like there was nothing interesting in these reactionary ideas, uh, and so we that's where we got the name Twelve Rules for What. It was like a uh, at the time I was listening to this Little John song on repeat. You know, uh, Turn Down for What. Um, uh, you I, know, I, I have I've heard of it. It's a, it's a, one of his uh, minor works. It was a phase of mine anyway, <laughs> and. Um, and and yeah, we just kept talking, and eventually we decided to. Yeah, start this podcast about the far right, partly because we we thought that a lot of what was being uh, said and what was being written about about the far right was basically pretty inadequate. And mm. um, we wanted to present a more you know kind of holistic approach to analysis of the far right that went beyond you know kind of uh, portrayals of 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 fascist is all the same all the mm. kind of all the same kind of politics um all having the same aims and the same goals yeah um, i mean yeah. i've noticed that about um like a lot of podcasts and yeah m- well many podcasts actually about um far right which is just a, a general lack of nuance um a lot of them are very inadequate uh, i think only like you guys and um I don't speak German is a great one. QAnon yeah. is another great one. Uh, uh, no, 
sorry, QAnon Anonymous, not QAnon, the actual movement. <laughs> QAnon <laughs> is brilliant. Great. We're a big fan of QAnon, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is actually a Q podcast now. I been <laughs> Q-pilled in the space of that last sentence. Yes. But, um, um, yeah, it's an easy thing to get wrong, and luckily you guys don't. Well, what we, what I kind of, the way I kind of think of it is people um, have kind of developed an anti-fascist way of, of thinking about politics in general in which any kind of bad actor in your political universe is kind of, the, the way they are made bad is they're kind of lumped into a kind of big mass reactionary blob of fascism, basically. Mm. And it, it leads to some really kind of dodgy analysis of uh, people kind of claiming that, okay, so, I mean, we can get into it a little bit more, but like people kind of portraying political figures who are definitely, in our view, definitely not fascist. They're you know, still really bad people, like, you know, mm. but not fascist and, and kind of portraying them as fascist as a way to, um, as a way to kind of, justify their politics uh, and obviously we think that anti-fascist politics is, is actually fairly narrow and, and that's a good thing you know we we're, we're we're interested in wider critiques of all these kind of things rather than just making it into a, a fight between anti-fascists and anti-fascists and fascists you know so that kind of leads to the first and probably a really easy question you should get done in like five seconds which is what is fascism Ah well, I mean, this is a this is a you know question we get asked a lot, and we've we've got a, a fairly pithy answer about it. But I would just say that um, the game of definitions is is one that people are really caught up in, um, and in in many ways it's a kind of false a false discussion. Not that I'm saying the question is illegitimate because it's definitely not. It's worth discussing, but it kind of I think when people try to start identifying what is and isn't fascist or like looking at the definition so granularly, it kind of narrows their analysis and um, you kind of blind yourself to kind of wider, uh, I suppose, structures of state oppression, state racism, counter-terror oppression uh, that are not fascist but are still like much more relevant and much more kind of um, uh, pressing in my, in my view. Um, for us, um, and you know, we, we, we've read a lot of definitions of fascism and everyone has to have their own one. We kind of divide into three constituent parts, which is an authoritarian state, um, mm -hmm. a reactionary uh, mass movement, and these things are kind of in interaction with each other, and then uh, some kind of paramilitary or extra-parliamentary uh, violence. I mean, even, even in the case of the Tories, like, um, you know, the, the British state is, is getting more and more authoritarian, and you can see that in the kind of the protest bills and the border bills and all this kind of stuff. But uh, where is the Tory reactionary mass movement? Now you can mm. see it in something like the, for example, like the Brexit, the movement behind UKIP and Brexit and Nigel Farage. It's, it's reactionary for sure, it's, um, and it's, it's 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 got the most kind of claim to being mass, I suppose, on the mm. kind of right right wing of politics. But it's nowhere in line with the Tory Tory. Uh, government in any kind of like meaningful way like so and the the reason why, why you have these three parts is we, we in throughout the birth of our books we kind of identify different strands of of different groups that are kind of emblematic of these things and so for example you know in the authoritarian state we have um uh orban's hungary uh, the fidesz party for example uh, which is you know hollowing out democracy in hungary in, a, in a quite a a significant way 
you know, we have the reactionary mass movements, we have generation identity, we have, you know, the militia movements in America. And we also do have paramilitary violence, you know, Atomwaffen uh, is a group from America, which is, you know, into, into kind of murder and, and Nazi Satanism. And, this, and then we have, of course, in, in the UK, we had national action as well. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, these things have not come 18, together. And... Sorry? And before them, Combat 18. And, and combat, combat 18, indeed, Combat 18 were indeed like a split from a kind of national front as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, a split from the BNP. They were mm. they were the kind of security wing of the BNP, and 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 split from them and, and separate themselves off. So, what we are concerned with is these elements coming together. You know, mm. yeah. Uh, and you know, there's there's place in the world where this is happening, or is is, is close to happening. I, I would think like not the, the closest we would we would say is kind of um, the BKP um, in India, Modi's uh, BKP. Mm. Um, but there are other examples as well. You can look at things like Brazil and Turkey as well. These are the places where these kind of elements are coming together the most. Mm-hmm. And we're going to move on to eco-fascism in a second. But um, just thinking of you know everything in the news right now, is the current uh, kind of uh, grooming sexual panic in the US a um, reactionary mass movement? I was. I mean, it's definitely reactionary. Um, the massness, I would think, would come from. Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I would. I would say so. Yes, of course. The conservative Christian right um, is is a is actually a big concern. <laughs> you know, these people are pushing through um, incredibly uh, regressive and oppressive um, laws, um, and the you know the. They, they, they're not insignificant in their numbers as well. This is not kind of a kind of elite pushing this in many ways. So whether they draw from which, from which class they draw from is another question, but there's no doubt about their massness, I would say. And um, again, just to quibble over a tiny minutiae of uh, the definition of fascism. So one of the kind of trends, I guess, you'd, that's emerged in, say, I think probably the last 20 years is the idea of us stochastic terrorism that you just turn up the heat on on culture war stuff and eventually you'll get people like the um uh the um Christchurch shooter for example he wasn't affiliated with any groups apart from giving money to uh, his generation identity or someone but he you know went out and committed was arguably a act of terrorism so it how does that figure into an idea of fascism having to have by definition a paramilitary wing when like literally anyone on the street can you know, go out and commit violence in the name of a fascist ideal yeah so the question is an interesting case because he's an example of a kind of paramilitary or extra parliamentary violence and also someone who is instigating further acts of terror as well you know, in in the kind of wake of his, the manifesto he wrote and he released was what we argue was intended to instigate further mass mass killings, and mm-hmm. he was successful in that. You know, the El Paso shooting came months later and cited his manifesto in its manifesto. Um, and 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 but these things are still there's no kind of um. Uh, 
the, it's just it's stochastic in in that the kind of rhetoric and the heat is turned up and and talking points are kind of appropriated. But there's no coordination between um, you know generational identity in the Christchurch shooter. Like in fact, his act destroyed it went a part of the way of destroying generational identity um, by kind of inviting in all this kind of um, counter terror um, action on them, which which essentially has shut them down in many ways. So, yeah, we root our history, what we call far-right ecologism. And, and the reason we say far-right ecologism is that environmentalism is a relatively new kind of political theory, I suppose, and we can root it in the 60s. Um, so we kind of, we're going a lot further back and we root our, our history of far-right ecologism um, starting with uh, kind of colonialism and colonial natures mm-hmm. and how systems of imperial domination, which were inherently racialized. Um, were played out through and with the manipulation of of landscapes and natural environments, and there's a kind of the classic conception of, of one of the classic conceptions of these colonial natures is that the land is empty. Any land that we arrive at is empty, and the only way it's filled is by uh, establishing civilization in the form of private property and um, an approximation of of European. Uh, practices of agriculture and so any kind of person who's living there who does not um uh you know match up with with that conception is deemed a non-person and no claim to the land hmm. um and in that we see um in the racial hierarchies a link to nature and, and natural environments as well and we de- develop that through the ideas of race science mystical connections so the idea that nordics for example are 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 intrinsically made by their landscape into striding you know wonderful creatures who can conquer the world Hmm. Um, which is a justification made for example by a guy called madison grant who is responsible for partly responsible for the system of national parks in america but was also deeply racist um and argued that white people had an inherent right, right to America because they were Nordics and because they had this kind of frontier spirit. Um, yeah. Yeah, the whole, um, I mean, the whole idea of um, race and land is made completely um, nonsense by the fact of white people going to America and saying, this is ours now. If they yeah. had truly believed that, they would have said, oh no, this belongs to the Native Americans. If we had mystically connected to land, we should we should stay in Europe. It's, yeah, um, and uh, and Matt Grant has got this big jumping through hoops thing. Um, uh, I can't remember what the sec- his name of his second book was, but his first book, "The Passing of the Great Race," is kind of an example of this. You know, worrying that the white stock is going to be diluted and, uh, and run out um, because of race mixing and all this kind of stuff, and therefore this kind of unique. Uh, racial type will be missing from the world and therefore everything will go to ruin. And of course, in Grant, um, you know, we see the roots of this kind of um, Nazi move to uh, kind of Nazi conceptions of, of, of race as well. Um, Hitler um, describes Grant's book, The Passing of the Great, of the Great Race, as his Bible. And you know, references it in, it in his writings and stuff. 
Wait, so Nazis the, being being inspired by Americans? What what, what has happened? But that's not that can't be right. No, the the, Americans the, are good guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's these continuities here that when people zero in on Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, they miss a lot of the influences that went into Nazism as well. Including cowboy novels. Hitler loved cowboy novels. I did and not know he, that, but I am entirely um, surprised by that. Um, I was writing a book about Nazism and Hitler for about a decade. So, um, um, yeah, re- re- totally went to waste. But um, he loved this uh, series of German um, cowboy stories called about a guy called Old Shatterhand. The okay. Germans didn't actually understand like any American naming conventions or the culture or anything so it's like completely um like idiosyncratic and it was nothing like what the old west is even in like cowboy movies but it like in it ended up actually inspiring like nazi like battle tactics and the idea of blitzkrieg war and um tons of tons of stuff came out of these um pulp cowboy novels that hitler used to love um that's absolutely wild <laughs> oh yeah he yeah there's so much in him that was just like garbage culture. He, there's very little, like if he was around nowadays, he'd be like, you know, anime and video games and stuff. He was just into just trash culture. <laughs> we generally just assume he was just into like Wagner and big powerful stuff. And, but no, sure. he was just into just garbage. He'd be like into Marvel and stuff. He was now out around nowadays. Hitler would love Marvel. That is true. Hitler, yeah. yeah, and everyone who loves Marvel loves Hitler. Um, there, I've said it. And um, so, uh, fast forward a little to say around the the emergence of the environmental movements, like the how did the post war right engage with environmental ideas as they kind of emerged over the the course of the remainder of the twentieth century, and kind of got to where we are now. There's a few moves going being made, and then, of course, the pri- primary move that the right makes, and even the far right makes in this in in this time period, is simply denial of climate climate change. Hmm. And denial is the great kind of overriding narrative on the right and the far right, and it still is to to this day. And it will change, but at the moment, this is the case. Um, and denial, you know, it it comes in many forms. Um, we talk about it in the book about how you know there's different types of denial, all the way through to forms of climate change acceptance that are ultimately denial as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so d- denial is a big theme, but there are also other moves as well. There's this thing in America called the Tanton Network, um, which links uh, explicitly links um, immigration um, with environmentalism, and how um, you know when we see kind of many many echoes of this in 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 contemporary discourse um now um Mm. but the idea that borders themselves are environmental that overpopulation or oversaturation of people in a particular territory more precisely and the oversaturation of the wrong race of people ultimately um will have massive detrimental uh effects on natural environments and the guy who founded the Tanton Network, John Tanton, was um, very um, kind of okay with this kind of linkage. Mm. Um, and the other kind of, the final kind of move 
um, in the kind of broad spectrum of kind of reactionary politics is this this kind of securitization. Um, so environmentalism as kind of a military project, I would say that with. Um, we see ultimately that the kind of armed forces of, of many different um, Western countries um, are increasingly talking about um, uh, kind of the climate crisis as a, a security crisis. And we see yeah. this most clearly in, for example, what's happening in Ukraine and with Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine right now, in that the answer to energy security uh, is, is tied up in, in uh, environmental security as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I saw in the news today that Britain's going to build uh, a bunch of new nuclear power plants. Yes, and... I mean, that's part of it, but also part of it is just um, any, and this is linking to the denial aspect as well, um, and obviously we're not talking about the far right necessarily, it's usually a, a broad kind of right-wing project, um, that any kind of um, crisis is responded to uh, by the solution of drilling for more oil. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we're seeing now that fracking is being reproposed mm. in Britain. Um, yeah, we're the seeing... North Sea and is, is uh, being way more opened up, even though they're building all this new nuclear capacity. The North Sea infrastructure is being built, yeah. um, you know, as we speak, or is beginning to be. Um, we also see, and this is much more kind of tied into, uh, in our, into our thinking, um, for, you know, Nigel Farage's new project, which is uh, um, Power Not Poverty, um, mm. Using the fuel crisis, um, the, the the fuel bill crisis, cost of living crisis, um, and the rising fuel bills to justify uh, rolling back, um, to argue for the rolling back of net zero um, priorities. There's a new group within the Conservative Party called the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Net Zero Scrutiny Group, and also mm. this, um, and of, of course, Power Not Poverty, Nigel Farage's new project campaign, is a rebranding of, of the Leave campaign. It's literally, mm. yeah. they changed the name of the company. Um, <laughs> so you can see these moves here. Um, how successful that will be is dependent on a large part on the left organising and mm -hmm. environmental movements organising. And it's also dependent on how much they can capture, you know, a, a significant enough section of capital in order to mm. push through these things as well. The, mm. the reason why I think Leave and Remain was so kind of close, ended up being so close, was because there was a big section of, of capital, of UK capital, that was in favour of Leave. And, mm. um, you know, the same... Is the same true here with, with kind of fuel poverty and, and, and drilling for oil and energy security and all that stuff. I think there is a significant kind of move there. Mm. Um, obviously, yeah, I think it's up to us to stop, it, to stop this from kind of developing in the wrong direction. Mm. And um, I suppose any project like that, a denialist project, is going to run up with the fact that, you know, eventually sea levels are going to rise or um, there will be massive heat waves and... Um, in the tropics that could kill potentially millions or even billions of people um so they know they're kind of on borrowed time they've got uh, a little bit of time to get this thing together to squeeze out a little bit more money from oil fields and then kind of things have got to, have got to change and that is kind of where eco almost well eco-fascism kind of comes in where these ideas have that are very very fringe today are in people in groups you mentioned like Atom Waffen and so on 
very, very small group of schools. Um, they will have ideas left lying around that mainstream conservatives um, are going to need are going to want to pick up, like the idea of immigration being an environmental problem, uh, linked to the land. Um, I'm sure all these net zero scrutiny group guys in 20 years are going to be talking about uh, knocking back the migrant boats that are going to be coming over and how Britain is we're all linked to the green and pleasant isle and so on. So where does eco-fascism emerge and how does it change from just pure um, right-wing ecologism and um, nihilism? Uh, we, we have a kind of you know, a, uh, a future section. We talk about the future in the book, which is obviously very, very hard to predict because it hasn't happened yet. Um, and we have kind of three, we have three scenarios of three eco-fascist futures, I would say. Mm-hmm. Or three kind of eco, I suppose, eco-reactionary futures. And then we talk about the emergence of like some kind of proper capital E eco-fascism as well. Um, and there's a few kind of scenarios we see playing out that, you know, the bad, the bad times scenarios. You know, one is like kind of reentrenchment of fossil capital. One is a kind of, in a similar vein, is a is a formation around renewable, um, green capital um, extraction of rare earth minerals um, for the kind of production of electric cars and this kind of thing. And and then we have a, a scenario of kind of total collapse and um, climate collapse cults, we call it, which is. You know, the descent into chaos and the kind of adoption of kind of a nihilistic um, mode of of living and and doing politics. Um, yeah, that's and a bit, we, this part um, reminds me of uh, Peter Fraser's Four Futures. Yes, um, but yes. very focused on the eco-fascism aspect. Um, yes, folks at home, go check that book out. It was really good, actually. Yeah, well, the bit about nanomachines was a bit silly, but that was my only my only critique about uh, Four Futures. Um, I feel like if you bring in the nanomachines, you have to have a really good justification for it. Yeah, we have to. You have to say it's not just magic, it, 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 or like it's something we can do in a timeline. It's not going to be like a thousand years from now. We're all beans in jars. It's a bit, um, yeah, it's a bit silly. But um, so with the eco-fascism, just sorry, just to finish up. Oh yeah. You know, we return back to these coming together. These three, these three elements. How does a kind of increasingly authoritarian neoliberal project, which is the British state or the American state or whatever European Union, um, which is that kind of hollowing itself out democratically and increasing its its techniques of authoritarian rule, uh, kind of increasing police powers, for example, more entrenched prison system, border uh, kind of shipping asylum seekers off to outside extraterritorial camps or whatever the proposal is. You know, increasing the authoritarian power of the state mm. to clamp down on protests, for example, whatever. How is that melded to a kind of reactionary movement? And how is that reactionary movement doing, enforcing its its political will and enforcing the interests of the state through uh, violence? And the way we kind of see that, I mean, the way I see that coming together is primarily at the border, for example. Um, we can see a kind of an emergence and a kind of adoption of some of the techniques that are happening um, on the borders of the European Union, uh, you know, generational identity when they were still going, we have this this kind of migrant, um, almost migrant hunter style ship, which had this slogan on which says, "Nowhere do not make we do not make Europe your home. 
whatever it said. Um, essentially enforcing um, European Union borders in the Mediterranean. We also see it in kind of attacks on, on camps in, in Greece and in other places by far right. Um, and how does that kind of come together in, in this way? Um, you know, you said something earlier about how it, it'll be, the climate crisis will become increasingly undeniable. And you said, oh, you know, when the evidence of, of millions of people dying in the tropics, I mean, that's part of the kind of way it's going to develop in that it's not happening here. It's not happening to white people. It's happening to uh, black people. And so it's kind of, we can kind of wall ourselves off from the encroaching chaos and continue living pretty similar kind of lives and lifestyles that we've got. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the arguments that is going to be made. Um, the, um, that you bring up in the book, the uh, lifeboat uh, argument, that there's only enough space for a few people. We have to let, uh, let some people drown in order to, for a few people to be saved. Yes, Garrett, this is Garrett Harding, one of Garrett Harding's things, uh, who's mm. a proper scumbag. Um, <laughs> the, the idea of lifeboat ethics, there's only so much room, and so we can't let everybody on because we'll sink the ship. And of course, mm. this is a really dumb, dumb take because, you know, eventually we're, as Christian Parenti says, and we, we quote him in the book, a very, Christian Parenti wrote a very good book, I can't remember the name right off the top of my head. But, you know, he says that eventually everyone's going to be dragged into the morass. This is not something that we can ride out. And, you know, funnily, you know, the UK is kind of uniquely placed in surviving for as long as possible in an mm, increasingly yes. unstable world. You know, we're an island. Um, we have great reserves. You know, we, have a, we produce a lot of our own uh, wheat. Um, you know, 90% of the wheat we kind of consume comes from the UK. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. We're quite a temperate island, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff. But... Even the UK will not last very long, you know. Yeah. I mean, with um, what did the last IPCC report say, like three degrees of warming? Which is, yeah, yeah Britain's not going to survive that. Very few parts of Antarctica are going to survive that. Yes, I mean, it will, it will last a bit longer, but Ooh. what does yeah. that matter, <laughs> you know, ultimately? It's the lifeboat with the least amount of holes in it. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually a decent analogy, yeah. And what a nightmare scenario that the last person alive is going to probably be English. Ugh. Oh, be no, way. it's going to be worse than that. It's going to be a group of English people. And they're all going to be bickering and it's going to be fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, the last words a human will ever utter will be, not being funny yet, not being funny, right? Not being funny, right? Um, yeah. And then everyone dies. Don't like it, leave it. Simple as. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it, yeah. But, um,. So, what we mentioned that you know, there's not a whole lot of eco-fascist or self-identified eco-fascist groups in the world right now. Uh, are there any out there at the moment that are ones to watch? That are pretend, like Atom Waffen was a few years ago before they kind of collapsed a bit under the FBI. Are there groups out there who are you know, may take the ball and run with it and be a threat to people? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. Like, I would even, even, even in the case of Atomov, you know, they, they were the, the the main violence they did was kind of to each other. There was lots mm, of intra-group yeah. killings. It, they were a very extreme, willfully extreme group, 
um, who kind of delighted in, in their extremeness. But they weren't necessarily the most kind of relevant uh, group, I think. And people rightly focused on them a lot because they were horrific, but it kind of I think it kind of blinded people to other other stuff that was going on. Now, where can we see this stuff happening? I, again, I would I would cite India, the RSS, BJP, um, and the kind of mass, uh, kind of increasingly institutionalized oppression of Muslims in India, um, and the kind of the place of India in a world which is going to be increasingly infected by climate disasters. You know, India is going to have a lot of climate disasters. You know, flooding, droughts, you, um, yeah. Have you read a book? Um, totally forgot the name of it now. Um, the Ministry for the Future by um, Kim Stanley Robinson. I have never read that book, no. Um, okay, well, one, go read it. It's, it is brilliant. It was easily my favourite book of the last maybe five years. Um, okay, and it's, well, that's, it, that's a massive <laughs> recommendation. Uh, only having spoken to you for, what, 40 minutes now, I, I know you'd like this. It, it is very up your street. Um, a lot of the things you're talking about are major, major themes in this book. But uh, it begins with a, um, a massive uh, heat wave in India. Um, this is like in a you know, couple of years into the future and um, ends up killing millions and millions of people. It's you know, a, like a huge event. And um, the book kind of plays out what will happen from there in terms of both eco-radicals, I guess you'd call them. And there are eco-fascists in it as well. And it's, um, you know, like I say, um, do check it out. It's actually amazing. Uh, ignore the uh, part on the cover where Barack Obama says it's his favourite book. Um, oh, okay. I, I don't think he gets it as much as uh, other people because it does actually argue for eco-terrorism being a very good thing. Um, yeah, just a little plug for that book because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but um, there was a, another kind of thing I was considering here, um, and another book plug. Unfortunately, there's this uh, book came out of 2017 called The Great Derangement uh, by a guy named Amitav Ghosh, and um, also Indian. And um, see, so he, he's mainly talking about uh, literature and why in novels written now in this kind of pre-apocalyptic period that humanity is in uh you know we have books like know, um sally rooney and things like that but why people aren't actually dealing with the fact that we're right on the precipice and um there was a another book that came out shortly after that argued the, the exact opposite that even in a literary fiction about people uh, middle class people falling in and out of love there is if you look at it close enough you'll find all these deep down references and anxieties around this like coming apocalypse that's going to affect everyone and um i was kind of thinking of that in in terms of the things you were talking about earlier the um increasing police uh powers the Britain's bill where if your um if your protest is a bit annoying they can call the police on you and you'll get literally 10 years in jail for organizing something if someone finds it annoying all this ramping up of police powers or the um the border being increasingly militarized and digitalized is there a way that this 
that the increase in authoritarianism that we're seeing is climate anxiety, as in the people behind it, they, they, know what, they know the score, they know how many years we've got left. So they're giving themselves the power now that they're going to need in 10 years when there's a surge of um, refugees from India, when a massive heat wave strikes and they, everyone wants to evacuate. Uh, are, could we look at like, the politics of the far right nowadays as being a like, pre-apocalyptic of like, anticipating what's going to be coming up? I think that's a really astute way of, of thinking about things as well. And and that's the difficulty, some of the difficulty we had in writing the book and, and thinking it through is that a lot of what we're writing about is things that are we're writing in in, in anticipation of. Mm. Um, in a, if Sam was here, he would he always cites this thing in interviews and I'm going to cite it now because he's not here. Um, <laughs> in that the British state is actually, if you look past the politics, if you look at the kind of machinations of the civil service, for example, the kind of... I don't want to. I don't want to use the term deep state. But, you know, that kind of the machinery of the state is actually very good at, at, at long-term planning, forward planning. You know, yeah. well into the future, decades into the future. And it's hard not to see these things as a recognition that the specific form of neoliberal capitalism that no one, no one anymore is willing to break from. You know, neither Labour anymore or the Conservatives or anyone basically is willing to break from the fundamental continued immiseration of the mass of people in this country uh, and the increasing wealth inequality and all this kind of stuff, the hollowing out of the NHS. There is no radical answer to this. There is kind of more taxes, more income taxes on ordinary workers and cuts to um, taxes on wealth, for example, or a kind of re-entrenchment of this wealth inequality. Um, there's a recognition that is going, that is going to produce, I think, uh, a much more fractious kind of mass uh, politics, and there is a need to control this as well. Hmm. And of course, I think the the aim is to inculcate like very little, like a, a general acceptance. I think of the hmm. things that are happening. Yeah. Um, I, I see it as being almost. Yeah. I see it as being almost like um, it'll it'll split people into two sides. You'll either have people who the kind of increased immiseration is going to radicalize. It's going to like make them give up, not just on uh, the government to help them, but on other people. It'll make them um, turn increasingly towards fascism um, and towards other reactionary things like uh, turf stuff and so on. Or you'll get people who are just who just give up. I have a slightly more positive take, and I, I do think you are. There is a there's going to be a strong tendency towards the kind of nihilistic acceptance or uh, an increasing kind of reactionary politics. But I also think that there is room for uh, left, radical left, however you want to say it, radical, emancipatory organising um, that can, I suppose, take some kind of impetus from this situation as well. And I think it's not necessarily that these conditions push people into one direction, which is ultimately ends in fascism. I think that's a, a, a dangerous way of thinking about it. Um, I'm not saying that you're doing that at all. Well, you can um, call me a dangerous thinker. I, I, <laughs> but I think it, what it does do is it fractures a lot of comfortable assumptions about how people live. You know, there's a kind of orthodoxy that has reigned since, I suppose, since Blairism, maybe beyond, 
that things are generally going to be okay, going to hmm. sort themselves out. Things can only get better kind of idea. And this is utterly... I mean, since 2008, this has been smashed and degraded and degraded further. Uh, and this does provide openings. And we saw this... You know, I've got many critiques of, of Corbynism and, and Labour under Corbyn. I'm not... You know, I wasn't particularly in that situation. But there was a reason why it attracted... There was a mass of people, young people... And, you know, all kinds of people who felt like it answered some of their anxieties. It answered, it provided the political answer for the, you know, for the first time in their political adult lives. Mm-hmm. Or a kind of re-emergence of some kind of social democracy for some people. And, and there's a reason why people rallied behind that and the reason why it was such a conservative effort, effort to smash it and to kind of completely... Um, wreck any chance of it happening again and i I think there is within labor i feel like it's closed off um the the party is is uh, vaccinating itself against the future outbreaks of corbynism but i think there are all there are other avenues for for this to emerge like people are not uh in any way willing to accept the present state of things i think and and whether which way it goes or what what happens, I think is up to organisers. And whether that's in unions or in community unions or all different kinds of movements, you know, there is I think hope there. Um, just look at the kind of stuff that Extinction Rebellion has been doing recently. Just stop oil thing and blocking refineries. You know, this is a much more pointed, targeted um, form of political activity than what they were doing initially. And it, I, I think it speaks to a, a level of political maturity that they've developed as well. There's no kind of, I mean, there's still talk of these citizens' assemblies or whatever, you know, everyone agreeing to do the right thing. Um, but there is also very pointed and very targeted uh, campaigns now. You, oh, of course, you also saw it with Insulate Britain too. Um, there is there's room for this kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's going to become more and more necessary. But I'll tell you a secret about podcasting, uh, which is that I always end uh, end my last question is always like a real downer. I always um, advance a real bummer opinion, just as it gives the guests the chance to go out on this like big cowboy speech where you say, "No, there is hope." Oh, damn, did you did you get me? Did you yeah, get me? I, oh, no, no, fuck. no. We we we, <laughs> we collaborated on that, but you didn't know it, and, okay. and you nailed it. You, you you got you got that totally okay. spot on. So yeah, well done for forgetting that. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, that, that, that is, that is it's an interesting pro- pro- provocation because I, you do hear it, you do hear that kind of thing quite a lot, <laughs> and I, I think it is quite dangerous because uh, if if this is happening, if this is being talked about like this in in the in the in in spaces where you know these kind of organising efforts should come from, then it's it's quite depressing. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um... Yeah, and I, I sometimes fall, um, fall for it myself, and I have to kind of pinch myself and and say, "Hold on, this doesn't do anyone any help. Get up, get up, and start doing some shit." Um, so can I just end on another hopeful thing now you that can, you've revealed definitely. the trick? Yeah, uh, Andreas Malm, who wrote a really has written 
many good books called, mm. you know, one called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, one's yep. called um, Looking White Skin's Black, Black Fuel, which is uh, another one which we, we drew from a little bit. We were kind of writing them at the same time. We saw a little crossover. Um, and we're going to be doing a panel with Andreas in the next few weeks. Uh, with yeah. Versa, oh, sorry, I uh, think, or... Yeah. I mean, maybe Carl the Versa thing, but I don't know who it's with, but we are doing a panel with Andreas. Um, and, you know, he talks about this idea of useful convergence and that things are starting to come together. You know, when you see the kind of far-right politics come together with uh, environmentalism, um, there is a coming together of two different movements as well in opposition to this kind of thing which is, you know, anti-fascist politics, anti-racist politics, and environmental politics as well. And I think ultimately we're going to start seeing these things start to become knitted together a little bit more. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some projects that are, are happening um, within kind of the outskirts of XR, talking about eco-fascism and far-right environmentalism. And I think that's an, an encouraging sign as well. Mm. Um, but I think these things are going to inevitably start coming together a lot. All the bad guys are teaming up, so all the good guys got to team up. Kinda, yeah. Like it's one of those Marvel movies. <laughs> I was gonna say, we're in the end game now. Um, oh god, I quoted a Marvel movie, um, and it was apropos too. It's even worse. Um, so, where can people find the book? So you can get it in. You can order it in most good bookstores. We recommend our friends Freedom Press in London and. Housemans, who um, you know are our friends too, mm-hmm. but you know it's via Polity Press, which is our um, our publisher. They're you know they're 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 an academic publisher, but they, the book is reasonably priced. You can get it directly from their website. Um, and there's our first book, Personal Internet Far Right, is from Dog Section, Dog Section Press, and if you Google them, you'll find them, and they're very good as well. Mm. Yeah, and. Um... Folks at home, highly recommend this one. Um, yeah, like um, like I said at the start of the show, I've like studied Nazism specifically, but fascism in general for a very long time, and there was a lot of stuff in here that was like, oh wow. Uh, even if it was things that I knew but hadn't reconnected, uh, th- this is a very very insightful book, and it's very good. And yeah, I'm sure it's going to be one of those ones, a bit like um, Ministry of the Future, where I think back of in 10 years time when all when the shit has hit the fan uh or has hopefully not hit the fan because you know the, the goodies have teamed up by that point and um yeah also do check out um alex and sam on 12 rules for what because again really great podcast um the most recent episode on tommy robinson um in bristol was very good in both like analyzing him as a entity and also like actually telling you how to get involved and do stuff and fight these guys uh, which you don't get in a lot of other um far-right analyzing podcasts yeah i was really pleased with that episode actually the guy our guest was uh, you know an activist on on in bristol who was who's been involved in the in the in organizing the thing and you know tommy robinson obviously we've done about three episodes on him so far and I'm, i'm sure we'll do another one um as as the years go on so yeah yeah like i say great the probably the only people on earth who are actually like writing great books and also doing a great podcast really really owning us right now so yeah folks at home check out both these things they're both great 
Um, we're going to end the episode with a little, little musical musical interlude. Uh, so we've played these a band on the show before, like a billion times because I love them. Uh, Devil Master uh, from the US, who are a kind of goth, blackened punk band. They sound like uh, that kind of canned web stuff you get in Halloween stores. You can spray in your windows to make it look spooky. And like rubber spiders, but in a band form, and they're amazing. Uh, the new album out pretty soon. Um, and this is the single off it called Acid Black Mass. It's a cool name. Um, and uh, yeah, if you like the show, you probably love this band already. I don't need, even need to tell you to listen to them. Uh, it's on Relapse Records, like a lot of great stuff is. Uh, so come back soon. We're going to be talking about uh, the. So we talk about an amazing book called uh, The Deloriad by uh, Missouri Williams, which is probably fits really well with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. A lot of like authoritarianism and climate collapse and stuff. Uh, and also the we're going to be doing a big old episode with all three of us on at once about the um, Hidetaka Miyazaki's video games. So, hey, <laughs> Yeah, I, I too. I ruined you, ruined your outro there. No, no, you did not. No, it, it's good to find an, uh, another a fellow um, tarnished. Or uh... <laughs> well, I, to be fair, Elden Ring's been my first, uh, been my first one, and I'm absolutely in love with this. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my god, uh, just probably a greatest video game of all time. But we, we're gonna just like fanboy out about it, and and I'm also gonna advance my theory that it probably more than any other series of uh, like artworks right now explains our world including the things we've been talking about on this episode better than any other artwork that's around right now in any other medium i'm that big a fan but anyway read the rise of ecofascism listen to 12 rules for what but you can do that after you listen to devil master <laughs>